Hello, and welcome to a very special edition of Romaniacs with a twist ending. Ian is not Kaiser Sose, I was not a ghost all along, and there is nothing in the box except mugs and t-shirts, but we do have some big news and we'll be sharing it with you at the end. Meanwhile, I'm Dorian Linsky, and joining me this week are three of our regulars. Ian Dunt is editor of politics.co.uk, author of How to Be a Liberal, which he is still shilling. Hello, Ian. Hello, 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 hello. On Tuesday, we all saw the Mayor of Greater Manchester, Andy Burnham, learning via text message during a speech to journalists that Manchester would be getting not the 65 million he asked government for, nor the 60 million they offered, but 22 million. Then Boris Johnson refused five times to confirm that more money was on the table before you turning uh, at PMQs on Wednesday. Typically smooth work <laughs> from Johnson there. <laughs> was, th- was this a, a punishment beating gone wrong or a, a terrible misunderstanding? No, it was their attempt to sort of kick back because Burnham wasn't doing what he was told. And the government is, you know, completely beset by control freakery of this sort. They really hate anyone standing up to them, especially other politicians um, and especially sort of politicians from from the opposition party. So they tried it. I mean, but the thing is, you could have told it, it wasn't. I mean, it was almost staggering to watch it unfold, right? Because you knew at every second, you're like, well, how do you think that's going to fucking look, mate? You know, if, if you're saying that you're making funding now contingent on political agreement with you, on political obedience, rather than public health and economic requirements of the public, then how on earth do you think that's going to play out? But nevertheless, no matter how obvious a mistake is, they will still make it and then do a juddering U-turn 24 hours later. Well, I mean, Grant Chaps, and we won't go into detail on this, but Grant Chaps was sort of threatening to take over transport for London, unless Sadiq Khan did did things like expanding the congestion zone by 18 times yeah. <laughs> its current size. It's like uh, they don't seem to have thought through the politics of going to war with, with, with MPs, on, uh, you know, sorry, with local mayors as a kind of uh, partisan grudge match. Yeah. Well, they, I mean, it is also, but they're beset with hatred for them. I mean, especially Sadiq Khan. They truly despise him. And I think Bonch, uh, Bonchen, <laughs> I think Johnson. <laughs> Bloody Bonchen. <laughs> I'm surprised, frankly, it's taken me so long to make that mistake. Um, is It sort of has a personal, real uh, hatred for him. I mean, today in PMQs, you started regurgitating all of the lies. And they are lies. There's no point using any other word apart from that. From Sean Bailey, the Conservative mayoral candidate saying that, you know, that, that Khan had bankrupted uh, TfL before COVID struck. He'd done nothing of the sort. He was actually improving its financial situation by uh, quite a substantial way. But then, I mean, you don't need to be a fucking genius to work this out. Everyone stopped using the tube. So TfL found itself in a financial problem. And Johnson just repeating those lies against him in the Commons Chamber today, in a way, frankly, that I was thinking, you really should be dragged back to put this record straight. I mean, you are right now misleading the Commons. But I haven't seen too many too many requests for him to do that, apart from obviously Sadiq Khan himself. Well, Burnham was a rather cautious, indecisive character uh, as an as an MP, and kind of did not do well in the in the twenty fifteen leadership race. You know, I think he could have yeah he could have been stronger if he was doing what he's doing now. Then, mm-hmm. you know, he he may well have been leader. And someone tweeted me that seeing him now is like bumping into an ex who's been working out. Been, <laughs> oh, you've changed. <laughs> And, and something he told the New Statesman really struck me. He says, Westminster makes a fraud out of people. It leaves you not sure what you're all about. Uh, and now he can sort of be himself. W- what do you make of this? And, and, and does, it, does it say something about the difference between being a, you know, being, being a mayor and being an MP? It just, it's just so much more, um, not just literally empowering, but just sort of better for the soul. I mean, I always used to particularly dislike him uh, when Labour was in government. He he really didn't stand for anything. I mean, he was a sort of Blairite when Blair was around. He shifted into sort of Brownite territory when Brown was around. He was very, very 
authoritarian on issues like sort of ID cards and on immigration. He wasn't great on Brexit either, actually. I don't think it, there's too much to learn necessarily from uh, the move in, in, term, in on a political sense. I think on a personal sense, and you could you could see evidence of this, by the way, when he was still in the Commons of how liked he was in the local area and how much affinity he felt for it. I think on a personal sense, it looks like the man has found a sense of sort of tranquility in himself in that position. <laughs> like it looks like it, it fits him like a glove. And that fact has allowed him to be really quite charismatic, really quite natural, uh, very intelligent in the manner in which he's used his position and his advantages over the, the course of the battle he's had with the government. He's done a really good job in recent years. And here's Alex Andreu, actor, writer and international treasure. Hello, Alex. Hello. <laughs> uh, someone else who's enjoying a new lease of life is Theresa May, who piped up in the Commons again to rubbish Michael Gove's insistence that we better at security cooperation after Brexit. Um, do things like this like make you like her a bit more now? Or is it too little too late for Mrs. No Deal is Better Than a Bad Deal? Never forget, never forgive. <laughs> um, I enjoy anyone with a high profile making trouble for this awful government. Um, nonetheless, I like her no better, I'm afraid. Um, <laughs> and neither should you or anyone, because what we're living through now in terms of Brexit is the inevitable conclusion to her arbitrary red lines. Basically, the course towards deadlock was effectively set in those first three months of her premiership, during which, without consulting anyone, without talking to the public, without discussing options with Brussels, she just decided to interpret what Brexit meant. And we're now uh, experiencing the fallout of that. Sorry, Theresa. Uh, back to Manchester. The, the imposition of Tier 3 seems to have wound up quite a lot of Tories as well. Uh, Manchester Young Conservatives <laughs> tweeted that Boris has lied about us helping in the North. It's time for him to go. And our old friend Christopher Chopper Hope from The Telegraph reports that a Tory MP told him Burnham has, quote, demonstrated courage and principle, hope and determination and a spirit that the British people can be <laughs> proud of. All hail the King in the North. Has the government just given a lot of those Labour Tory switches uh, in the North buyer's remorse? Yeah, I think they have. I think they've handled this really, really poorly. I mean, at the moment uh, Johnson announced that, that it was going to be just 22 million at the press conference and then, uh, you know, asked four times, refused to confirm that the 60 million they had already promised would be on the table, I basically said they would have to back down from that because there's no rational way for a government saying, we agree 60 million is what you need and then taking it away, that doesn't make them look petty and vindictive and playing with people's lives. Basically, when Johnson, I think, uh, rode his little digger and crashed through that wall of foam blocks, that wasn't just a catchy gimmick. I think that's how he thinks politics works. So they've refused to believe that anything in front of them has any real heft. They treat everything as if it's a foam block they can just crash through. Um, Nicola Sturgeon's popularity is not a foam block. Andy Burnham's uh, appeal in Manchester is not a foam block. The solidarity of the EU27 is not a foam blo block. And hoping to just drive through any opposition just means you end up crashing against the concrete wall again and again and again. And when will they learn? Here to talk about somebody I hope will be crashing into a concrete wall in a couple of weeks' time is Yasmin Sahan, staff writer at The Atlantic. Hi, Yasmin. Hello. I hope so it's not me that's crashing. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's the... 
I was, I've, I've teased it. I'm about to do the big reveal. Um, your latest article is a look at the populist world leaders who've been emboldened by President Trump. Uh, Bolsonaro, Orban, Modi, Duterte, all our favourite guys. <laughs> Boris Johnson sadly didn't make the cut, so he's not even the best at being the worst. Um, of those... Who do you think has the most to lose, maybe in practical terms, but also in terms of a, you know, perhaps a changing weather if Trump isn't reelected next month? Yeah, there were, I mean, I should say there were a lot of leaders I probably could have included on that list. Um, <laughs> Boris actually didn't even kind of come up in my top 10, if for no other reason than the fact that I've always sort of questioned his populist credentials. I mean, I think he he gets the rhetoric down from time to time, but Alexander Boris DeFevel Johnson is probably elite and establishment personified. So I don't think he's he's quite up to it. But um, but as for which leader, I think does have the most to lose. I'd have to say Bolsonaro. I mean, I definitely think he's someone who has kind of gone all in on the Trump train. I mean, this is a this is a leader who once took to Facebook Live to broadcast himself watching a Trump speech on Iran. So um, <laughs> seriously, you can look this up. It's from earlier this year. But um, but yeah, we so- thought Jeffrey Tubin embarrassed himself. <laughs> Oh gosh, yeah, no, <laughs> no, no one's that bad on this list. Um, Bolsonaro, at a domestic level, really trades on his proximity to Trump um, so much so that you know he's just gone ahead and endorsed him. He hasn't really bothered with the sort of diplomatic kind of you know not really saying who um, who he's going to support. And and I think if Biden were to win, that it would obviously be quite an awkward start for for sort of a Biden Bolsonaro relationship, um, especially since Bolsonaro already went after Biden over his pledge to stop Amazon deforestation during the first presidential debate. So I think in terms of which of these leaders probably has the most to lose, it, it would probably be him, but certainly none of them, um, I think, would would be too happy if, if there were a change in administration. Oh, well, that would be a little bonus, wouldn't it? On this week's podcast, they're the trouble starters, lockdown instigators. The Welsh government has announced a twisted firebreaker for two weeks starting this Friday. And time is running out again for a Brexit deal. Are the two issues of Brexit and COVID melding into Covexit, the Voltron of clusterfucks? Plus, what can the rest of the world learn from the landslide victory of Jacinda Ardern's Labour Party in New Zealand, a country that is enviably largely back to normal? Before we get started, a reminder that you can back the podcast on Patreon to get episodes a day early and get exclusive updates, including next week's mystery revelations. But first up, this week, Schrodinger's Brexit talks, dead, alive, or both at the same time. At the dispatch box on Monday, Michael Gove announced Brexit trade talks had effectively ended, only for Michel Barnier to tweet that the EU is in fact available to continue discussions this week. Gove praised the constructive move, as he called it, but Downing Street is holding firm. Ian, as of Wednesday... Where are we? Oh, fuck. Um, it's basically like watching two people sat at a table going, now you talk. And then the other one's like, now you talk. And then the other one's like, now you talk. And then the other one's like, now you talk. And you're just like, well, this is just the most insane spectacle of uh, like nonsense that I've ever seen in my life. So there are essentially no talks taking place, no meaningful talks on the proposals in front of them, even though both sides could easily come to a deal at this stage. Like the, the moves have been made and it's quite clear 
the areas in which both sides are prepared to give in. Britain's giving up its idea of being entirely like Norway on fish, but it clearly wants to get an increase in the quota, which Europe originally didn't want. EU's given up on uh, Britain adopting all of sort of EU law on state aid and European Court of Justice jurisdiction on it. Britain has given up on the idea that it's just going to go on to WTO rules for it. It's clearly going to set up its own uh, domestic uh, enforcement regime. There will be, I, th- I think it's very clear, uh, trade remedies at the end of a mediation process on state aid. What that means is there's going to be a core legal mechanic and you can put sort of, you can whack tariffs down on the other side if they contravene uh, your state aid rules. So basically, it, it's perfectly obvious to anyone that's looking at it exactly what the compromises are. All of this is just the politics of it. So, you know, Britain flounces off. The Europeans think, look, we know you, you've got to do this for your domestic or really for your Eurosceptic MPs. Um, so just you go do that bit. And when you're ready for us to just talk again, then we'll talk again. Um, but I think it's over the last two days has been a bit, it's been a bit, you would have expected now for the British government to go, oh, we've got what we wanted because we're such tough negotiators. They haven't done it yet. Maybe they just think you need a certain amount of time doing this. Ultimately, you look at the core of it, you look at how baseless their, their emotional suggestions about the talks are, and you have to conclude I think sometime next week, I would say probably it'll be like Monday or Tuesday next week. I think they're going to say, right, we've got what we wanted from Europe and we can restart the talks now. And the deal remains as it was before, a perfectly, perfectly easy deal to do. And right now, the two parties are in a position in which they could easily do it if they just stop talking shite. Yes, I mean, what do you make of Michael Gove? He's still being fated as a successor to Johnson, despite being rather unimpressive at the moment. Is it just that the competition in cabinet is, is so bad? Yeah, I suspect that that's certainly part of it. I mean, apart from Rishi Sunak, um, who obviously we we all love now because he gave us free food for a month. Well, not free food, but substantially cheaper food, which which I know certainly my, my friends took advantage of. Um, you know, I, I haven't really heard of anyone apart from him who's been kind of meaningly thought of as a as a successor. But I have to say, kind of as an outsider and someone who arrived after the Brexit vote, I've been most struck by how important the Leave Remain labels are to Conservative Party leadership, I think in particular four years on. Mm. And and if, you know, if the only pool of realistic candidates still are folks who voted Leave, um, you know, then obviously you're going to have a lot slimmer pickings. Um, so those are the only two I've really heard of. But um but yeah, I'm, I'm a bit perplexed. But I also, I guess, you know, I'm kind of also obsessed over my own country's fate at the moment. I haven't even <laughs> stopped to consider who the next prime minister will be. No, um, fair enough. <laughs> Alex, uh, five Anglican leaders, including the Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, have spoken out against the Internal Market Bill, leading Steve Baker, the ERG hard man. Uh, to argue that Johnson should disestablish the Church of England, which is exactly what the founders of the Conservative Party didn't want to happen. Um, I mean, bishops don't run the country. This doesn't seem like this should have been such a big story. Why I love Brexit- that this needs saying that bishops don't run. Don't run. So, but why are Brexiters still, even at this late stage, so madly intolerant of any opposition at all, even if it's not going to make a difference? Because they and the government are absolutely shit at stakeholder management. That's the short answer. They show it again and again. I mean, the government is at the moment in a sort of Jack Palance spaghetti Western standoff with 27 EU countries, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, Manchester, London, 
Kent, the opposition, the Lords, the Church, the civil service, the entire business community, their own scientific advisors, their own backbenchers, and the majority of the country who think by a margin of two to one that no deal is a bad outcome. So when all your negotiations collapse in acrimony, it is difficult to continue to claim that everyone else is being difficult and intransigent. <laughs> That's superb. Uh, the real deadline, the one after which a deal can't be ratified, is November 15th. Do you think Johnson will, in fact, concede at the last minute? And if so, which red lines will he raise? Oh, um, the, first of all, the, the real deadline may not be the 15th of November, incidentally, because my commission contact tells me that if an outline of a deal was agreed by the 15th, they could continue working on the draft text and then build into the treaty a sort of ratification to three-month period where nothing changes, but it's just to ratify things. Now, whether this will happen, I genuinely don't know. I, I think part of the issue for commentators like us is that, you know, for three years we've been trying to glean what the government will do through the prism of sanity. And we just need to stop that because the government is insane. It, I mean, it is just as likely that by the 15th of November they will have tried to annex Malta and declare war on Mexico. That, that is just, it's just as likely a possibility at this stage. Okay. You heard it here first. <laughs> war with Mexico. That one coming. It's war. He's got his special... Alex has got his special music and video graphics to bring out. It's war. I will have my enchilada and eat it. <laughs> <laughs> now it's covexit time if you like <laughs> if you like one crisis that threatens economic disaster and national fracture then you'll love two of them at once <laughs> ian as discussed we've got the regions and the nations refusing to listen to westminster uh, no deal possibly uh, an economic crisis underway anyway so far brexit and covid have generally been seen as two separate problems but are they about to be sort of glued together by incompetence and become part of of one big narrative yeah i mean i think a they are just on the basis of these two news stories are operating in tandem um i mean even this week I, I couldn't i was literally looking at certain tweets and i was just like are they talking about fucking manchester or are they talking about europe you kept on saying you know our door is ajar <laughs> or our door is open you're like to who to burnham or to barnier it was, yeah. it, it, on the, it was it's on the table isn't it still on the table and on the table and the door to the room is either ajar or open depending on where we are it was actually genuinely quite confusing at certain moments. Um, and of course, once we get to January the 1st, when COVID will be more severe, given the way that they're pursuing it at the moment, we will need, regardless of whether there's a deal or not, customs checks and safety and security documentation and, and, and regulatory checks and SPS checks, all the other sort of nightmares of border control taking place on Dover Calais, then it's really going to hit. But I think there's a similarity in, a kind of, in two separate ways. The, the first one is, they're getting entwined in the impact that it's going to have on business. Because there's there was this idea in Downing Street of like, look, you can swallow the hit of Brexit because, you know, COVID's so severe. So it sort of just gets swamped, it gets lost underneath all that economic disruption. And there's certain areas, you know, like re reduced trade due to COVID, that that might be true. But that's not really the case for the way that businesses operate. 
Um, not least of all, because of this issue that's been brought up quite a lot recently uh, with trade guys, is just saying, look, if you're a business that's preparing for Brexit, you're going to think, well, let's stockpile because we want to be, you know, there's going to be obviously disruption at the border, so we might as well stop our goods. However, COVID pushes you in the opposite direction. It says, let's actually keep a bunch of capital on hand because we need to prepare ourselves for shocks. Now, you can't, you know, doing those two things at the same time for any, any business that's you know, looking after the bottom line is quite mm. difficult. So actually, they do sort of worsen each other in that regard. I think also, like in a broader, less practical political sense, what we're seeing in the political response to COVID right now in this country is part of the sort of simplism, the anti-expertise-ism that we saw with Brexit. Of fuck all that. I don't want to hear the complex stuff. Let's just pretend the world is simple. Now, there is a rampaging sense growing in momentum all the time on the Tory parliamentary benches and even in parts of the cabinet of saying, well, let's just let COVID flush its way through the population, you know, protect the vulnerable, let it flush through. You've got scientists going, this is why that doesn't work. You know, you cannot separate out the 30% vulnerable of the population. You cannot guarantee that the young people who get it wouldn't have long-term um, health problems. Anyway, people wouldn't be going out to shops. But those complex messages are ignored in favor of the idea of, well, the world is simple. Fuck the experts, because they're this kind of metropolitan elite. And, and that, I think, is the reason why we are now seeing quite an overlap in the kind of anti-masky, anti-lockdown guys who all seem to be on the Brexit side. That's not to say that there's a bunch of Brexiters who don't think that way, really rather a lot of them, especially in, in the public at large. And there might be some Remainers who think in the opposite direction. But generally speaking, that split does seem to be along Brexit Remain lines. And I think the reason for that is that sense of simplism, that aversion to the complication of the world. Well, Yasmin, with Johnson and Trump, voters chose bold, simple solutions. But currently, Starmer and Biden are more popular than the populists. Do you think the COVID crisis has sort of has dealt, uh, if not a death blow, then, then certainly a significant blow to, to simplism? Oh, definitely. I mean, I think you could say that this crisis is something of a populist's worst nightmare for a lot of the reasons that Ian laid out. I mean, it's bolstered the popularity of establishment meter leaders, the likes of Jacinda Ardern and Angela Merkel. You know, it's it's reinforced the importance of institutions and experts like Chris Whitty and Anthony Fauci. It's totally overtaken all of the sort of populist wedge issues that they love to exploit, you know, like immigration um, up until at least very recently, like the EU and Brexit. These are not things that people are prioritizing right now. And and in a way, you know, I think populists, the likes of Trump and Bolsonaro, writing off the virus as, it, sorry, I'll repeat that bit. But, you know, I, I think that the way that populists like Trump and Bolsonaro are writing off the virus as, you know, something that people shouldn't fear, something that's not a big deal is a pretty risky move because, you know, that message doesn't really go down well if you're someone that has faced this virus yourself or someone who has loved ones who have. There is a tradition in populism of actually not caring that much if your citizens die, <laughs> um, which, which, uh, which, which is, often, is often a handicap for them <laughs> come, I mean, come the next election. It's, it's a risky move, too, because, you know, you could easily be speaking. I mean, the, the thing is, the, the virus doesn't just avoid people who happen to be the supporters of populists. Like, it affects everyone. So, you know, if these are people who have offered simple solutions and said, look, I have the answers to, to all your woes and, and everything, would be them economic or otherwise. And then a crisis like this comes through. And, you know, if you're like President Trump and you're touting all the 
wonderful medical uh, resources that you as the American president have, but the average American may not. It's a hard message to sell. So I think they're taking a huge risk. But but what I will say just as a as a caveat, not to be the bearer of bad news, but and I've written on this before, but I don't think that this all necessarily means that the pandemic will be bad for populism. I think especially when we kind of face the sort of the aftermath of this pandemic, mm-hmm. especially the sort of economic ramifications of it, mm-hmm. those simple answers may well come back. And you could well have mm-hmm. people like the ones that Ian was talking about, the folks who said, look, I oppose the masks, I oppose the economic shutdowns, and I was right, because look at you know this disaster. Obviously, people can't go back and be like, but look at how many lives we saved, because we'll never know for sure. But you know, mm-hmm. that that could, well, I, I think those types of people are, are kind of setting themselves up to be the people that come back later and say, see, we were opposed to all this and this is why we're in this mess. This is why you should support us. Mm-hmm. Alex, so much uh, about government is about projecting power and control. The government seems to have lost it already at the start of this sort of, well, it depends where you say the start of the period is, but certainly during this the second period of lockdowns around the country. Mm. How can it get that back and convince people that it's it sort of, really knows what it's doing well i think the bad news that it is that it can't I, I can't see once discipline is lost how you can gain it back the only exception i can see would be a really high profile scalp so johnson or hancock or cummings if someone like that went it might be possible for them to reset and say we will behave differently now so please give us a chance but barring that i really can't see how they can they can put the cats back in the bag i mean civil servants from other departments were being taken away to work on brexit long before covid came along mm. does whitehall have the manpower to handle these two crises at once, as well as all of its other responsibilities? It's stretched too thin. I I used to work in the civil service. From what I hear from former colleagues, the civil service has given up trying, if I'm honest. Uh, they, They think this is going to be an absolute tsunami and everyone is basically trying to enjoy the beach as best they can before they're engulfed. I don't think there is a a cat's chance in hell that they could deal with it because they don't know what the issues will be and they don't know what the problems will be. As I, as I wrote a year ago, when you're doing risk management, the serious risk comes when small problems interact with each other. And having these two things at once creates a myriad problems that can intersect with each other and make big problems that you just didn't see coming. Ian, let's do some explaining. Wales's two-week fire break starts this Friday. What exactly is it? How is it different from a circuit breaker? It's, it's basically the same as a circuit break. So the, the idea behind these is it's a sort of two-week lockdown, although they, they, the aim is to keep the schools open or at least partially open. Um, and that you buy – no one claims this can fix anything. The, 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 the function of it is to buy time to try and just reduce the rate at which the virus is developing, to try and stop this this – horrifying sort of process by which it keeps on doubling the infection rate. Um, so basically, circuit break and fire break are the same thing. I mean, we, we probably need to get it. I do want them to just decide on one of these words and we can just keep on using it. I just assumed it was I assumed it was dragon related <laughs> for the Welsh. It's a very imaginative approach and frankly yeah. far more exciting than what it will actually entail. So how do we gauge whether or not it has worked? And 
because uh, I think some people think, okay, well, if it hasn't worked, then it just goes on and on beyond the, the two weeks. What's the logic of that? So there's a really good article actually on, um, on my site on politics.co.uk uh, by Christina Pagel um, called A Second Break Will Save Thousands of Lives, which I, I would point you towards on, on the science of this stuff. Um, and who obviously explains it better than I ever will. The, the idea really is just to buy time. And you probably will. And you'll notice that Starmer doesn't like talking about this part for, for obvious reasons. You probably will need further ones in future. Um, they want, I mean, the, the ideal thing to do would be to time them for half terms and uh, school holidays. In fact, we've got half term coming up on Friday. Because that way, you know, you could maybe even cl- close schools as well. And you'd only have one week lost for, for parents having to deal with having kids in the, in the home. Um, in all of these cases, you're just trying to avoid replication so that you get to a point where, and this is the truth of it, this is the dim truth of it, you've got to get test and trace working. That's the only thing, apart from a vaccine, which we can only hope for that will come over time, that can actually make that function. The thing that alarms me about it, and the thing that I think makes it hard to test, and this is the crucial part, that, you know, it, let's say we did it, and they would do it in Wales, and then people are going to point at Wales and go, well, look at where their infection right now, it's not even, it hasn't even fixed it. The idea is that I think the real concern here is you, you're dealing not with the situation as it is now. The situation that you're dealing with at the moment is the result of what happened a month ago. Everything that we deal with with COVID happened a month ago. It's like looking at the light from a star. You're not seeing what's happening now. You're seeing what happened a very long time ago. In that article, Pagel had a sentence which has just been destroyed. Just, I can't stop it bouncing around my, my head. She said, Everyone who is going to die from COVID in this country in the next four weeks has already got it. This is the thing. You know, you've got two weeks before you end up going to hospital. And usually people die when they die of this thing about two weeks after they get to hospital. Those people who die over the next month of COVID are going to already have it. And that, the problem for, with that politically is that you can have what they're going to do in Wales, two, three week lockdown. And you're going to get the, the usual suspects on the Tory benches pointing at it, going, well, look, you know, they haven't fixed it. It's not, about this. It's not, not aiming for what happens immediately. What we're aiming for is what happens a month after that to give us a head start, to get some time to control, to try and do the other things that the government said it would do over the summer and catastrophically failed to. The risk for the English government, of course, is that if Wales ends up in a situation where they can basically start to reopen things for people to do their Christmas shopping and enjoy their holidays, just as England is forced to intensify measures and basically put the country on lockdown, there'll be a very direct comparison and people will be able to say, look over there, they did it better. Is there a financial incentive to lock down hard? Um, Because if a region tries to muddle on without one, then businesses and workers don't get government support and you know you've got some pubs saying well we'd rather be completely closed and then we get loads of money rather than only being able to welcome households if they're eating before 10 p.m you know that 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 actually it's just it's more expensive not to lock down yeah i mean yes there is and and look this goes back to the heart of what's been in this issue all the way through which is that you don't um you don't defeat the economic effects by just pretending everything's okay you only defeat them by showing that you have some degree of control over this virus. So people feel confident enough to go out. At the heart of the economics on this and at the heart of so much of what the government is doing right now, when it says, well, we're only going to support people for two thirds of their salary. I mean, for, for so many people in this country, they can't get by on the entirety of their salary. 
you know, for people that work in, in retail and hospitality, lots of these areas which have very low pay, they can't get by on the whole of their salaries. You're saying to them two thirds, oh, and you can use a bit of universal credit, which by the way is a completely fucked, broken system, which we're anyway going to bring down to old levels in spring, just isn't an acceptable answer. But it comes from an economic view that is completely illiterate on government borrowing. And you're hearing this more and more from Tory MPs that have been doing it over free school meals this week, of saying, well, look, we can't afford, we've got to balance the books, we've got to make sure this doesn't run out of control. But the truth is, bonds in this country are at historically low interest rates because there is demand for them. And while that is the case, the government can borrow to help people now. And by doing that, it, by spending that money and doing lockdown short, but probably arguably regular lockdowns, you can make sure that people do the things that are required to keep the virus in check, but also don't lose their jobs. Don't go into a situation where the economic recovery is in the medium term harder to create. So economically, in addition to the public health arguments, that it all points towards this one approach to doing it. It's not an easy approach. It doesn't solve everything, but it is far superior to the one that we're hearing from the government. Yeah, when, when Rishi Sunak used the phrase uh, balance the books in a speech, it was like a real head-in-the-hands moment. It's like yeah, not exactly. anything but that. Now it's time for To the Barricades. Each week we choose a cause that listeners can rally behind, and this week it's Yasmin's turn to pick one. Yeah, this is, thank you for this opportunity. It's cool. But yeah, the cause, <laughs> um, I was pleasantly surprised by it. The, the cause that I'd like to flag... I guess I should preface by saying what we all already know, which is that this year has been terrible for many reasons, especially for the media industry. It's been quite tough. The organization that I'd like to flag is called the Rory Peck Trust, which um, provides support for freelance journalists and their families around the world through grants, trainings, and other online resources. I picked them because I think it's you know impossible to overstate just how difficult it's been for freelancers, uh, many of whom have lost assignments and seen commission budgets slashed at a time, arguably, when we need their stories the most. And unlike you know staff journalists like myself, they don't have the institutional support and safety net to rely on. So uh, Rory Peck Trust kind of helps bridge that gap. So yeah, encourage you all to check them out. Donate if you can. Good. As a freelance journalist, I heartily endorse this endorsement. <laughs> <laughs> or you can just send money directly to me. There Details at the end of the show. Right. That's Dorian's to the barricades. It's <laughs> me your money. money. <laughs> Finally, maybe politics isn't all awful all the time. On Saturday, the Labour Party of New Zealand PM Jacinda Ardern won a landslide re-election victory, the country's first outright parliamentary majority since the introduction of PR in 96, with 49.2% of the vote. No UK party has achieved such a high share of the vote since the Tories in 1959, not even Tonti Blair. In the words of the former opposition deputy, there was simply no reason not to vote Labour. Ever since her victory, progressives in the UK have been squabbling over ownership of Jacinda Ardern. Depending on who you're listening to, she's either centrist mum or Lady Jeremy. Yasmin, <laughs> <laughs> um, what exactly has Ardern achieved in New Zealand and how has she pulled it off? It's kind of hard to just list all the achievements. But I mean, what she's basically done is, I think, shown the world kind of what competent and compassionate governance looks like. I, mean, I think what struck me kind of looking back on her tenure these last three years is that her government has faced a myriad of crises. I mean, you think back to the awful terrorist attack in Christchurch, last year's deadly volcano eruption, and then, of course, a global public health crisis. So she hasn't had it easy, but um, I think her leadership has definitely put New Zealand on the map to the extent that folks are really paying attention and perhaps silently seething that she isn't the, the world's prime minister. So, 
Ardern was one of the few who moved decisively to curb COVID-19, and for 24 days she even eliminated it in the country. Polls in April said that 90% of New Zealanders trusted the government to deal with the pandemic, compared to about 60% across the G7. Is that the the only reason why she could win this big? That this is, if you can get the issue of the day right, then you know nothing else matters. I don't know that it was the only thing, but I think it definitely her handling of the pandemic sealed the deal for her. I mean, I was reading coverage of Ardern from back in February, where, you know, some observers were opining that, you know, she could face trouble at the upcoming election over her party's failure to meet its promises on key campaign issues uh, like affordable housing, child poverty, climate. These were a lot of the issues she ran on initially in 2017. And, and, you know, it's worth saying, of course, that a lot of these problems were inherited and probably required more than three years to solve. Uh, But I think, you know, a lot of critics, um, including some Labour supporters, felt that, you know, perhaps the government hadn't done enough. But then obviously, you know, the pandemic came around and her government stepped up and absolutely smashed it. So I think voters were willing to reward her for that. And not just with re-election, as you said, but with a mandate that would allow her, allow Labour, I should say, to potentially govern on their own, which is pretty huge. Um, Alex, before the pandemic, as Yasmin just said, the party was down in the polls, accused of overpromising and underdelivering. Mm. I mean, is there anything that British Labour can learn in opposition from Kiwi Labour's comeback while in government? Because those are two very different situations. Yes, yes. so to, to some extent, there's very little they can learn directly, because what worked for Ardern was that instead of arguing every outrageous point thrown at her by her opponents, she treated it as white noise and stuck to her positive message. That's really difficult to do when your opposition and the outrageous things are actually government policy. But they can draw parallels. Um, To to me, it was really interesting that Ardern's instinct uh, after the election, even though it's not happening, and even though she had a huge majority, was to reach out to the Greens to to do a coalition. That suggests to me a really different way of thinking about mm-hmm. politics. And and there, I think, is the lesson. Well, the British Labour left um, have been raving about Ardern's manifesto, uh, the increased school funding, increased top earner taxes, climate-friendly policies. But, you know, that, that may be cherry-picking. Is there a clear picture where you can actually say how left-wing she is compared to, um, compared to a British Labour leader? Yeah, I, I I think that's the wrong question to be posing. I don't mean by you, I mean by Labour. Um, because it implies that voters' principal concern is precisely where on the right-centre-left axis a party, <laughs> party sits. And I think that's bullshit. In truth, what matters more is tone, attitude, uh, how a leader makes them feel. And Ardern found a way to be calm, and conciliatory when everything around her was falling apart. That is a quality that is rare, and people recognize that. She found a way to make people feel good about themselves and positive about their future without appealing to nativism. That's a magical sweet spot. Ian, Ardern is, I suppose, one of those rare world leaders who has become a real international figure for the right reasons. What what do you think that she has? What are those sort of qualities that mean that that people who probably could not tell you who her predecessor as the Prime Minister of New Zealand was find so fascinating, give her this sort of celebrity, moral celebrity status? I mean, the first thing is that she's going against the tide, right? So we're so used to 
seeing nationalists and populists win, that when you see someone on the centre left and sort of, you know, who who, who deals in, in that way of doing politics succeed at the moment, um, in a country that you've heard of, you know, that, that's well known to people in this country, then then obviously they get a higher showing. I mean, she's she's also actually quite unusual in her own right. I mean, she was incredibly young when she first became prime minister. She was 37, which means that there are people running whole countries which are actually younger than me. And that makes me feel fucking sick. But nevertheless, it was, you know, a good, a good thing to do. Um, Have you tried, though, Ian? I don't want to I mean, it's not like a life goal of mine. I can, it's I can, very important to me that no one, you know, does anything too accomplished while having less years on Earth than I have. I, don't I like can that. barely run a bath. Alone <laughs> <laughs> a country. Um, she also gave birth while she was in charge. I mean, look, it's, it, this stuff sounds sort of frivolous or superficial, and I don't think it is. I think it really matters that people see people in charge who are young, who are female, who, who are literally, you know, giving birth, who are looking after a baby while doing this stuff. And that has a particular effect, I think, given that she is, that the main thing that is being mentioned about her is competence, right? That's the thing that keeps on coming up is competence, not just on COVID, but especially on COVID, but also in her response to the Christchurch shootings, which changed the gun laws. She looks like a steady pair of hands. And so by virtue of who she is and her circumstances and how she behaves and how she governs, she cuts down many of the sort of lazy sort of stereotypes and prejudices that people have around political leaders. Do you think, because I remember when, I mean, other people that seem to be kind of swimming against the tide and had a certain kind of celebrity quality to them, whether that's Trudeau in Canada or Macron in Mm -hmm. France, of course, had many flaws, got into all kinds of trouble later. Is there something a bit sort of more like a fandom, like a pop fandom around the way that people outside New Zealand talk about Ardern than actual sort of political analysis? Because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not particularly au fait with, with, with New Zealand politics. I mean, her policy, I don't, she's not right on everything. She, she's not great on immigration, funnily enough. I mean, she's not terrible or anything, but she does want a reduction of immigration, which I think when you look at New Zealand and the kind of levels of immigration it has, it's just not, it, that's not a, a really... It's a credible point, I suppose, but I, I would strongly disagree with it. However, she's been good on refugees while while taking that approach. In other areas of policy, she's been very impressive. So the thing that people I don't think have really realised yet is that at the same time as the election, uh, she forced through a sort of referendum on cannabis legalisation, which we, you don't get the results at the same time, unfortunately. We, we, I think we get the results on the 30th of October, as I understand it. It's quite a weird, complex system. So on drug law reform, she's been much more impressive. And, you know, things like this, we tend not to talk about drug laws. I mean, dr- drug laws are, I mean, A, intolerable on a basic moral basis if you should be entitled to do whatever the fuck you like with your own body. More importantly than that, they are a racial issue. You know, in each country that the war on drugs is applied, it is used against racial minorities. And in fact, it was conceived by Nixon for entirely this purpose. And that is the purpose that it continues to have. So I, I would say, you know, it's not just a celebrity thing. You look at her record, and although there are ble- there, there are problems there, I think on immigration, it's quite a significant one. It is mostly a very impressive and actually quite a radical liberal program that, that she's put forward. She's impressive on policy as well as everything else. Um, yes, I mean, no honeymoon lasts forever. What do you think's in her intray uh, that might cause her problems um, mm. and maybe think quite differently in a year's time? I mean, to be honest, the same thing that I think is going to cause all world leaders a lot of problems today 
I mean, the pandemic is still ongoing, even if New Zealand has managed to eliminate it, not once, but twice, um, as it so happens. It was kind of mind boggling watching her victory speech, because the first thing I thought was, oh, she's not wearing a mask. And the second thing I thought was, like, oh, my God, there's loads of people in that room. But then I remembered, oh, yes, it's New Zealand. You can do that. Um, (laughs) But yes, I mean, but I mean, you know, that that crisis, despite the fact that they've handled it so well up to this point, I mean, that hasn't gone away. We, we have obviously a global recession and widening inequality, and and these are issues obviously that that labor have um have kind of have put at the center that that she'll need to focus on in the next few years. In a weird way, also the fact that labor has been given this you know unprecedented majority that the fact that they could potentially govern alone, I, I think, will also sort of change things because no longer does Ardern have to sort of deal with having a broad coalition. She had the Greens on one end and, and New Zealand first on the other in a previous government. But but anything that they do going forward would fall to them. So um, oh, I, loads of challenges, and I think I don't think it's um too pessimistic to say that her second term will probably be a lot more difficult than her first. Alex, voters cleaned the slate of populists, including all of Farage's friends at New Zealand First. Um, Why is it like, you know, another bit of good news as well as as Labour's whopping mandate. I think over the last few years, perhaps with with the populist wave, we've learned a lot more about the individual political cultures, you know, why Hungary is different to Brazil. You know, they they might have these sort of popular strongmen, but they operate very differently and they tap into different kinds of grievance and historical uh, context. What is there something about New Zealand's sort of political culture that that would explain this very benign turn? Are they just better than us? (laughs) (laughs) That's what I'm asking. Maybe, maybe. I mean, the answer is I don't know. Maybe, maybe they're just better than us, but I, I don't think so. I think it has to do with, I think timing is a huge factor. You know, I think if a, if an election had come two years ago, the result might have been very, very different. But because politics does not operate in a vacuum and we live in an incredibly globalized news environment, I think people can see how populists are doing in other countries. So I think they've began to take their promises and their easy, simple solutions with a pinch of salt. And I think you see that in the polling everywhere because you see people, for example, like you know Angela Merkel was in real trouble polling-wise uh, two years ago, and, and she's had a massive uh, increase in support during this crisis. And that's not just because of the way she's handled things, but it's because because also people can visualize how, for instance, Alternative für Deutschland would handle things if they were in charge, because they can see America, they can see the UK, they can see Brazil. And, and so I think it becomes, you know, a virus being so merciless and, you know, brooking no spin and no fake solutions, has created a template by which you can see how well governments do. I know this is an embarrassing thing to say for someone that's a political journalist, and given that she's been in charge for well over a decade. Um, But is that how you say Merkel? (laughs) Because I've been saying it wrong the whole fucking time. Merkel. Is that how the Germans say? I, I don't know. That might just be my Greekness coming through. Oh, I, <laughs> you, you, oh okay. You've Mediterraneanized it. Okay, Maybe. Good to know. I Maybe. think as long as we don't call her Angela, we're in good shape. Yeah, I think she's- <laughs> Finally, 
Yasmin, um, I suppose thinking about timing here, it was argued, and you know, counterfactuals can only go so far, but it was argued that, that Barack Obama would never have won his first election if not for the financial crisis. Uh, even though he was a very strong candidate, that was what made the difference. If Biden wins this one, will you know, we'll be able to say, I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure Trump would, would, would certainly blame the virus, but even, even uh, people like us, we'll be able to say, do you know what, if this had been a normal year or if the election had been a year earlier mm. or whatever, it would have been very, very different, you know, and that those incumbent advantages and the advantages of the uh, mm. economy and all that would have given him a re-election. Yeah, I think so. I actually, um, it's funny that you ask that because I, I did an event with um, Ipsos in February and it basically the conclusion was that like looking at Trump's incumbent advantage, the fact that the economy was going well. And I was even asked by someone in the audience, like, do, is there anything that could happen that could, you know, undermine that? And I said, no. <laughs> and then fast forward eight months and I look like an idiot. So, um, but, but I mean, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, without question, if, if the election were held eight months ago, I think one could make the argument that, you know, it, looking historically at how presidents do, but the economy's good, he, he, the, the odds were pretty good for him. Now, obviously, not, now it's totally up in the air, but no one wants to look silly and make predictions because we did that last time. And well, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so yeah, I mean, I, it, it's, it would be an irony, though, because if, if it is the pandemic and this crisis that gets Biden into the White House, it, it could be those same crises that are going to make his potential presidency that much harder and that much shorter, potentially, if, if you know, I don't know if he decided to run for a second term, but yeah, it, it would be a massive challenge. So, um, so yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll see, as they say. That's the end of this edition of Romaniacs. And here's the big twist of Romaniacs in its current form. When we come back next week, the podcast will be a little bit different. It will be the same team, the same values, the same sense of humour, the same day of the week, but we are changing our name. Although we'll always be Romaniacs at heart, we can't remain in the EU because, like it or not, we have left the EU. But we can still fight the wave of right-wing populism that's sweeping the world. We can keep standing up for reason, diversity, internationalism, liberal values, cheap gags, as they come up to a sustained attack. Of all of those, probably it's the cheap gags that I would die on a hill for. So our job will be the same as it's always been, to inform you, to make you laugh, and to let you know that you're not alone. We're going to keep on dissecting Brexit, COVID, and everything else in British politics under a brand new name, which is... going to be revealed next week. If you want to be the first to find out and the first to get the podcast, then back us on Patreon and you'll hear first. Just search Patreon Romaniacs. That name, at least, will stay the same for a while. And even if you're not a Patreon backer, your RSS subscriptions and other links should uh, update seamlessly. But our army of social media operatives will be standing by to help with the changeover next week. We're looking forward to a brave new era where we see you next week. Until then, thanks to Yasmin. Thank you for having me. <laughs> sorry, sorry, that's delayed. Sorry, no, no, it's fine. Nobody's, <laughs> nobody's used to this new this new goodbye style. So everyone, everyone pauses the first time. Um, Ian? and alex goodbye and here's demon is a monster by corner shop the official romaniacs theme tune since 2017 and a thank you to our latest patreon backers (laughs) 
Hello, and thanks for supporting us to JL Robertson, Derek Leonard, and Mark Davidson. Thanks from me to M. Shaw, Chris Barton, and Roland Ellison. And a big thank you from me to Mary Leeds, John, and Vera Kemper. And thanks from me to Mary Halporson and Terence Sutcliffe. Take care, and we will see you on the other side. Romaniacs was presented by Dorian Linsky with Ian Dunt, Yasmin Sahan, and Alex Andreu. Audio production and scripting was by me, Alex Reese. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold, Nielena Sofronievich, and Romaniacs was a Podmasters production. It's the end. But the moment has been prepared for. <laughs>